Welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Today, we showcase one of the most amazing British entrepreneurial stories of the last half century. Edwina and Clive are the husband and wife behind the success of the Tesco Club Card. They were the first to use data to really gain insights into their customers. It's a really interesting episode of Jimmy's Jobs in the Future, as we talk to them about how the data revolution started and where they see it going next with the advances in AI that we are seeing across our economy. And take us back to that moment in the Tesco boardroom, because it must have been pretty extraordinary because you were quite a small team there and you're in sort of biggest retailer in the country and you're making a presentation. What was that day like? Um, well, it, I think we knew our stuff and we'd been set up very well by our internal sponsor, a chap called Grant Harrison. So we'd been set up very well by Grant in terms of what to say, what not to say. I think like all these things, we have to remember this was sort of pre-internet. This was, you know, how do you get data from the stores to the center? There was, you know, there was a lot of logistical challenges still in those days. But I think what was interesting is Tesco knew that they had to step change their business. And they knew there was something in this idea of a loyalty card because they'd been doing the trial and they'd seen a small sales spike but they couldn't describe why it was happening. And that's what we did. We brought alive a little blip on a chart and we told them interesting stories about it. And I think it's like all of these things. And I think actually it's still the biggest challenge for people today is you have to tell compelling stories to bring people with you. And I think our story was amazing. I think we, we basically said, this is how many customers you have. These are the holes in the baskets they have. If you could put one or two more items into those baskets, it's worth this much money. You know, and he was like, well, why wouldn't you do that then? I mean, he was like a, um, you know, here's a check for several million pounds. Uh, all you need to do is say yes, and you can have it. Uh, so it's a bit glib, but at the same time, you're right. I mean, you know, the scary moment is when they said yes. It was, oh, my God, how are we going to scale up for this? Uh, I mean, there were two important characteristics. One is that they knew what they didn't know. And yes. they were very honest about that, all of them, including the big boss, Terry, uh, Ian McLaurin. And so many people find it hard to admit that they don't know and that they're stuck. And they did that. And it all credit to them, really all credit. The second thing was that they were decisive and they said, we're going to go and we're going to go really big. Um, based on this evidence, they didn't do what so many do now, which is let's check it again, let's look at mm. it again, let's think about it for a year or two. And there's so much procrastination now, and they were decisive. And why do you think there is so much procrastination now? Risk averse, nobody knows what's coming, and everybody feels like they're in the same pot with that fear, with that unknown. And it's quite frustrating when you feel that innovation is the best way to deal with stagnation or, yeah. you know, a change in pace, a change in style. And it, it is something, I mean, it was, 
it was remarkable even the difference between the UK and the US. Um, that stood out as well because when the US saw what was happening um, with Tesco in the UK, they said, I want one of those. And they mm. said, we want to do a Tesco. That's all they said. Um, whereas nobody else in the UK would work with us at all. No one would even, talk to us. Nobody would work with us. Even after the, the all the Tesco success then? Yes. Yeah, I mean, Tesco didn't put any barriers on us. They were quite happy for us to work with others other than their immediate one or two named competitors. Mm. Um, but basically, people were frightened of Tesco. They were frightened that we would share you know, their secrets with Tesco and help them. And, and I think, I mean, in a way, you, know, you see that repeated today in, in organizations like Amazon where in, you know, the small merchants who are on the marketplace they bring out innovative products. And if it's a really successful one, you know, Amazon got to come along and build their version of it and put it into their main store. Um, and, and I think, I think businesses are overly frightened. I mean, one of the things I always remember was, um, uh, Tim Mason, who was marketing director at the time, uh, Tim said, look, it's about having a better set of golf clubs. We've got a great set of golf clubs in the relationship we've got with Dunhumby. Um, but we just have to use them better than anyone else. Why are we, why do we care if someone else buys the same golf clubs? Uh, and that was wonderful from them, but other people were, oh, I don't want to play with the same golf clubs as, as, as Tesco because, you know, I might be tired with the same brush. And I, I don't know, there's something about it. I, I think, and I think it's got tougher. I mean, I must say now I find the whole procurement process so protracted. Gone are the days where you sat opposite someone. You said, we're going to make you this much money, shake hands on it, and we go and do it. Yeah, Because when we did um, uh, France with Casino, it was a shake of the hands, and that was it. We no, did France, no, we did Brazil. No, no complicated did. contracts. We're going to do it. Let's just Thailand, Colombia, it was a shake of the hands, and it's, that's gone. I, I mean, do you think we're, we're too risk-averse as a, a country? I mean, it is one of the things that – the government's always trying to push when it comes to entrepreneurship is is teaching people to be more ambitious and you know Rishi Sunak's even said it on this podcast right like we've got to try and get people going from you know just building a hundred million business to a billion um pound business and and so on and it's um you know you're w one of the few standout successes of somebody who's taken that startup and, and really scaled it up so do you, are we too risk averse not only are we risk averse i mean women do not get invested in mm. uh so most investors would prefer to invest in a male-led business so there's a kind of inherent um barrier i think to mm. that um you know a lot of people will say women are risk averse i i don't think that's the case there's no evidence for that but the money doesn't flow in yeah. that direction and yeah. and i think you know there's definitely a slowness to invest and i think scaling up is even harder we were very lucky because we were highly cash generative we mm. didn't have big investment decisions beyond no. you know the first computer which was massively expensive 
But beyond that, yeah, because it was really big. And now yes. you can do it on a mobile. I mean, it's really funny to a lot of yeah. people, but um, but but that was our big investment. And then the rest was people. And so yeah, I mean, we didn't I, have that barrier. No, I think you're absolutely right. I, I do think I do think we are more risk averse. And I think also we are we're party to a regime in terms of startups that basically doesn't encourage innovation the way it used to. You you get measured remorselessly. I mean, we put our business plan together and we hit our numbers, but completely different way to how we thought we were. We had the one most wonderful angel investor right at the beginning, um, a, an old colleague who we'd worked together with, who basically we had lunch with. We said, we need this much cash. He wrote us a check. You know, yeah. no... You know, and we gave him, he said, just give me what you think is fair. Jeff Squire, an amazing, brilliant man. Yeah, amazing, brilliant guy. And and Jeff was fantastic. He really, he just backed us. And and it was, you know, it wasn't a huge amount of money, but it was enough to to get the seed corn going. And I think Edwina's point about women fascinates me because I think, you know, you didn't really see it at the beginning because we were so small. But as we got bigger and bigger, I mean, the number of meetings, we weren't in many meetings together because we had a family. So we tended not to go to many meetings together. But those that we did, you did see this phenomenon where Edwina would make a fantastic point and everyone would look at her. with, And then, you know, my job was to basically say exactly the same thing 10 minutes later. And everyone would go, oh, yeah, it's madness. Um, and I think, I, I think people really struggle with female entrepreneurs particularly. Um, but at the same time, I think we've we've reached a stage in this country where you're measured so hard against the numbers that you put forward and everything is about you've got to hit this two-year plan, this three-year plan, this five-year plan. The reality is if you're innovating, you don't know what's around the corner. Anyone yeah. who says they know what's around the corner isn't innovating. There are two interesting builds from that, which is um, – the first thing is that, you know, as Richard, one of the guys who worked with us really closely at Tesco and was kind of our day-to-day lead, commercial lead, he basically said, um, it's really interesting. Ten of the things that you do are interesting but not important in, in insights and data analytics. But that tenth one, makes us a shed load of money mm. and and that was like one in ten isn't that what the investors in wall street and the stock exchange bank on one big winner out of ten and that is the nature of innovation that it's not clean and it's not polished and you don't know what you've got until you've done it and tried it and it's given time to breathe. And I think that that short-term, you know, focus on it must measure and tick every box right from the beginning is, um, is unhelpful. And, um, and it doesn't allow that creativity and that kind of bounce from a really good idea to actually grow and take strength. Yeah, um, yeah. That's the, I think the other side of it is as well is that, you know, it's what you call yourself. I mean, we would have never called ourselves data scientists, machine learning people. We were, 
but we would have never called ourselves that because it, you know, sounded esoteric. We, we basically put ourselves in the marketing camp. Mm-hmm. Um, and what was interesting is, of course, the markups there, the, the, the ratios there from a financial investment point of view are much, much lower. The, 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 the valuations there attribute to that are much, much lower. But um, whereas, you know, if we'd said we're, you know, we're, we're AI and market data science, blah, 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 you know, we probably had an obscene valuation at some stage. But like all of these things, the reality is there's only so much money you can make. Um, and I mean, the, the nice, the nice thing was, as Edwina said, we were very, very fortunate. We were cash generative for virtually our entire, um, journey. And so we actually only dug a quite a small hole, um, and we were able to fund a lot of our growth ourselves rather than go to the investment. And we went for half of the pie rather than the whole pie. So with retailers around the world, we said, we will do it half, half with you. It's a 50, 50 joint venture. So they, cause. For us, it was huge. For them, it was quite small. Yeah, um, important but quite small because where their win was 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 in the main store with shoppers buying. But in terms of the the business and what we learned, that was relatively small for them. So they put everything in there. I mean, all their learning, all their education, yeah. all of their innovation, they put into the Dunhumby joint venture which meant, you know, we were fed with their skills and talent as much as trying to grow our own. And so I want to come on to what it's like founding a company with your spouse. Uh, But the first question I wanted to ask about that was, why did you go that way round with Humby done and not done Humby? (laughs) Did you toss a coin? Not at all. No, come on, just say the two words, Humby done. Done, Humby. Sounds nicer. I just got lucky in that one thing, Jimmy. I got really lucky because he, no matter how many times he said it, it just didn't work. I mean, I mean, the the irony, the irony is the reason that we've got separate surnames is that our previous company they didn't like the idea that we got married, so they made Edwina keep a maiden name. Um, so professionally, by the time we decided to go out on our own. She was Edwina Dunn. She wasn't Edwina Humby. It could have been Humby and Humby, you know. <laughs> Why didn't they like you, the fact that you got married? I suppose, yeah. Oh, God. I mean, you're talking, these are days that people don't even remember now. I mean, it was so um, orientated towards, um, you know, not having married couples within business. In fact, you know, I remember when, I started going out with Clive. You know, I was taken aside by the boss. I was taken aside and told that, you know, it wasn't very good and it wasn't allowed to have an affair in the office. <laughs> and I, I was only young at the time. And I remember saying, it's not an affair. We're in love. You know, and I was so innocent and ridiculously um, unaware that all this was happening. Um, and it probably meant we got married faster than maybe we, I mean, what with that and my father thinking that I'd, you know, run off with some man or something. It was like, these were old days. This was old yeah. school. So you had to conform. And so here I was conforming like mad at the beginning and then finding myself in boardrooms with wall to wall male leaders who you know, are not known for being 
um, gentle or politically correct. Um, it's not that they weren't politically correct, but they were fairly robust, as you can yeah. imagine. I think the words robust, though. I mean, I don't think they were ever outright sexist, were they? I mean, I mean they, they treated you like an equal, except when they call you Madame la Présidente. Oh, no, that was my favourite title. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's what you insisted on, right? Um, I mean, what was- and what was the decision like to be like, okay, well, we're going we're gonna to start a, a company to, to go to them? So we loved the company that we were working with originally, and we wanted to do the next step, which was customer data, passionately at that company. To be clear, Clive and I learned all our entrepreneurial skills there. And we complete this where we met each other. It's where we got married. We were totally happy there. And then, sadly, this brilliant company made a rather stupid mistake. And they insisted that they have an American um, lead this British piece, small piece of the company because they couldn't trust a Brit to do it. And they um, helicoptered in um, an American who really knew nothing about the business and had no passion or love for it. And at that point, um, you know, really truthfully, Clive, who was actually the boss back then, um, just stopped loving it. I mean, it just all became about money and siphoning off profits and all the life and fun went out and it's at that point when you realize that you're watching your business partner and your life partner lose the lights in his eyes you realize you've got to step away and so we were kind of forced into that position you know you tried i think over and over again to persuade them there was no movement so he resigned and I'd said to him, don't worry, because we'd just taken on a big new mortgage. And I said, don't worry, I will stay until you know what you want to do and I'll pay the bills. And he went, great. And then when he resigned, they fired me 10 minutes later. Wow. That was fun. Yeah. yeah. And then, and that, so, so we really had no choice. We had to come up with a plan quickly. And then the second we came up with a plan, they tried to stop us working and took us to court. Wow. Um, so we fought them in court for a few months. It was brutal. It really, was brutal. really brutal. They came after us to break us, and it was done with intent. And when you've gone through some, when you've looked at each other at like four o'clock in the morning, with fear in your eyes that you're going to lose everything you worked for for the last 10 years and have nothing at the end of it. And you look at each other and say, can we rebuild? That's when you know you've got a working partnership and you trust each other. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, it was probably, it was probably the most traumatic thing we've ever been through. Um, other than it health scares or something like that. But it, it was really, it was a really traumatic time. But what it did is it forged a determination to make it successful, to yeah. show them that they, they'd made a mega mistake. You know, basically they could have owned it. They, yeah. And actually with their resources, they could have been a massive corporation. They could, you know, if you think of the people who followed on, 
you know, the Siebel's and CRM companies and people like that who took the basic idea that we had, but had enough cash to really do it at mega scale. Um, you know, they could have been, they could have been a, you know, a trillion dollar business just in what we did, but they wouldn't back it. And then, Hey, then now we are where we are. I'm, I'm sure they have more regret than you do now. Um, and what, what, what <laughs> advice, what advice would you give to people starting, uh, a company, um, together with their spouse? Well, we had a few background rules, which is the, if things drive you really crazy about each other in relation to your working day, you have to, no matter what it costs, you have to kind of give in to them because those little irritations end up being a super destructive. So yeah. one of the things that used to really annoy both of us was the fact that we wanted to leave, to go and to leave at different times in the day, even though we didn't live very far away from work. So we both drove in separate cars and came back separately from work. So that was really important. Yeah. Because we drive each other crazy with that. Um, the second thing we talked about, which is that we would, one of us would always be there for, for the children because that was like one of our core values and, you know, really important to us. Um, and thirdly, I suppose you have to respect what the other one does and not tread on their toes. You know, if, if they're the expert in what, the story is what the data is what the transformation is that's their stage that's them when it comes to you know negotiating a deal on a joint venture and what the cost is and what the team is and and that's you know my thing then you know you give each other that space so yeah. um you got to have ground rules yeah really. sounds we great also and also we'd make appointment to talk to each other yes we would about something i mean it was really crazy we would literally put it in the diary and we'd it have was very it was very important that we didn't just drift into work at home um we basically had we had a work room at home and it's like if we want to talk about work we're going to go in that room we're not going to do it in front of the tv we're not going to do it over dinner um that, and I think, never eight o'clock in the morning because it's no. like a really dangerous time. Yes. But I think that's quite interesting. The third space there, the kind of commuting distance, even though it wasn't far, like you just need that sort of that yeah. moment. I, I find like it's amazing running a podcast because you get to do it from home and loads of flexibility. But I do find that sort of 12 steps downstairs to go and see the kids, it's not long to make the mind, mind shift from, you know, media mogul. Yeah podcaster to parents it's like it's quite hard like to, to, to alter your absolutely brain. i think uh, that's dead right, dead right and life goes on doesn't it you know i mean yeah you know you you i think you've got to remember ultimately you're only doing it because you've got a family you're only doing yeah. it because you want better things for you your family and, you, and the rest of it you know <laughs> you're not doing it because it's a massive ego trip it's not why you start it but it's definitely a huge part of what it becomes. Yeah, totally. And what do you make of the, the evolution of loyalty cards? Because there's quite a lot of sort of commentary about it at the moment in terms of the um, cost of living crisis and, and how actually now 
people are, you know, you go into the supermarkets and you see the sort of the two different prices in a lot of places now. What do you make of that evolution that you've seen? Well, I mean, I've never really liked the term loyalty cards because loyalty to me implies something goes well beyond a commercial relationship. And to all intents and purposes, it is still a commercial relationship. But I think what, I mean, I think there's a recognition that actually, if you know a customer well through the transactions and you can have a, you can basically give them offers that they like and meaningful for them, that's a good thing. I think the current shift towards two-tier pricing, you know, if you've got a card, we'll give you a lower price. I think that's a way to get away from the points mentality. Um, that was always the case in America. It's always been two-tier pricing. We, you know, we've never had points. We never had points with Kroger. Um, basically, in America, it was you pay X for the product if you're a member, and you pay Y if you're not. Um, as, and I think that essentially is a sort of very explicit contract between the consumer and the retailer, which is basically saying, we know everything you buy because you use your card. That helps us run the business better. You get a slightly better price as a result. And I think that's a very simple transactional positioning. And whether you're giving points or two-tier pricing, I don't think it really matters. I think where, the, where it's gone wrong is you can only really run a retail loyalty program with a reasonable volume of transactions per customer. And mm. when you see people developing loyalty apps for coffee chains and fashion outlets and things like that, you think, well, you know, I mean, how often, you know, I mean, the, the people who I shop the most with as a man, uh, the people who make my shirts, I probably shop with them six, eight, nine times a year, probably by 10 shirts, 12 shirts a year, whatever. Um, yeah, but there's just not enough knowledge about me from those few transactions yeah. to really be anything other than Clive's a good customer or an average customer, whatever I am to them. Um, he likes stripes or he likes checks, basically. Yeah, there's, it's yeah not... and, that, and that's a seasonal thing. You know, I wear checks in the winter and I, I wear plain in the summer. Or, or bargains. Or bargains. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Can't wait for those. Can't wait those three for 50 quid offers to come yeah. round. And um, the whole card was really a thank you card. It was never really meant as a loyalty card. But the thank you card really, the, the difference is if you're, you know, if you're Walmart or Aldi or Lidl, you're just about the cheapest product, the cheapest price. If you're anybody else, you're into investing in what someone values alongside price. Is mm. it? convenience yeah. is it range is it nice staff is it clean stores and so you have to work harder as the retailer in order to understand different yeah. customers different consumers so it is rather a simple term for a lot of work yeah and i think i think the other thing is if you think about a a, 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 a mid-scale retailer who's selling a wide range of products like a tesco or a sainsbury's where you treat yourself in the store really matters because that's where there's real margin. You know, if you buy a nine ninety nine premium coffee, but you buy one ninety nine tea, you know, the margin's in the coffee; it's not in the tea. Mm. That's not so true if you're a if you're a discount retailer with a narrower range. You might still have a premium coffee, but probably not as much choice. Uh, and so, therefore, your basically your dynamics are rather different. And we had this thing about where do you treat yourself and where do you economize? 
if you can understand that about a person, that's how you make real money. Because if you can find the areas where people will treat themselves, you can leverage a lot more value. That's really interesting. And it's one of the challenges with the inflation is that if you're in the basic goods category, it's even harder because people are really watching that. Whereas they might spend a pound more on peanut butter or the spread that goes on the bread, right? Rather than the bread itself. Exactly. Yeah. And it's really sad when the basics range, the value ranges are going up disproportionately high. That, that doesn't feel right. Yeah. And I think, and I think the other thing is making, making your life better by having more things that you want. I mean, you have to remember when we started, if basically a, apart from slight regional variations, you know, a thousand square meter Tesco in one city and another city had virtually identical ranges. Mm. Whereas now those ranges are tailored to the communities they serve. And that sounds a trivial thing today, but when we started, that was massive. You know, having complex supply chains where you're delivering different products to different stores at different frequencies is something that, you know, we've only been able to cope with through the growth of technology. But it makes your shopping experience that little bit better. It yeah. doesn't it doesn't change your life. You know, you you know, if you've got to find tin tuna, you'll find tin tuna. But, you know, the bottom line is actually making your life that little bit better by having a slightly better range, more relevant range, it makes a huge, huge difference. And do you, I mean, Edwina, you were talking about basic costs, you know, basic goods going up. Do you think that there's a few accusations flying around at the moment about supermarkets profiteering and so on? Do you think that's something that's happening? Well, if they are, and I have no idea, but if they are, it's a dangerous strategy because... You ha- you know, winning trust from people is really hard mm. and, and it's easily lost. Yeah. And I think, you know, these businesses are in it for the long run. And, you know, that trust, you know, it's, it's like, you know, you understand when someone gives data, when they give permission for their data to be used, if that's used respectfully and carefully and it adds something to their experience, it's all good. You tilt that in the wrong way and there's a sense of, you know, injustice in any form, that tilt is going to swing and yeah. that's dangerous. Yeah. So I, I don't know and I hope not because it would be a very short-term strategy. Uh, uh, I think... I think what's happening is there is chronic there is chronic inflation in the in commodity prices that has put real pressure on. People are trying to tackle it in different ways. You know, we've heard about you know the the three hundred and fifty gram jar that becomes three hundred and twenty grams, but we won't move the price. Versus, we'll put the price up. Versus, 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 and you know. Um, the Daily Mail can spin a story or any, any of the sensational papers can spin a story about we're being ripped off. But I think broadly speaking, I don't think there's a, a culture of, of rip-off going on. I think it's more that people are trying their best to get the prices right for people as best they can. But actually, the dynamics of the moment are quite regressible. I mean, you know, you look at fuel costs, you look at commodity costs, not the actual product itself, but the input costs, they're so unpredictable. 
Um, you know, and you de- there's definitely a bit of a story about, you know, the price of petrol goes up really quickly and it comes down very slowly. But actually, you have to also remember that, you know, that fuel is bought and put into the supply chain. And, you know, there's a lag between when you buy it and when it physically appears in the pump. So, so the consumer doesn't really see that. And when it comes to sort of, you know, jobs of the future, what are the kind of like macro trends that you're seeing in, in terms of um, customer trends and so on? Because obviously this, you know, you were pioneers in this industry. It's now become kind of much bigger in terms of understanding consumer psychology and so on. What are the trends that you're seeing in this space? Well, amongst, so in my work with um, women in particular, but not exclusively, um, you know, I've very much been on a mission to encourage people to do some of the subjects that have been really abandoned um, Mm. in schools, which are the sort of STEM-related subjects, which are the, you know, the maths, the physics, the chemistry, et cetera. And, you know, there is no doubt that we are still way behind the curve on generating graduates with those sort of heavy duty, you know, what are called slightly harder or more expensive subjects to study. The evidence is overwhelming that students with these um, subjects and these skills earn disproportionately more not least because there's a scarcity, but also because every single job of the future will have some element of either automation or gamification or quantification, to go back to the point Clive was measuring, uh, mentioning on, on measurement. And so, you know, where there used to be subjects that you could assign to the scientist, like lab technician or physics teacher that's all completely wiped away and it's now every single industry including the beauty industry mm-hmm. including you know the fashion industry they all require these other subjects and what shocks me and you know i'm very focused on is that you know our poor teachers are trying to give best advice parents desperately want to give best advice you have three lovely daughters you know what do you recommend well the truth is for your daughters the jobs they will end up doing probably don't even exist today Mm -hmm. and so it's all about the skills that they develop because those jobs are changing but the subjects that are just really not being um invested in and recommended Maybe because we are so obsessed with what grades people get rather than what subjects they get at school. So, um, yeah. Maybe that has to change. Totally. And this is all coming from somebody who studied geography, of course. Thank you very much for reminding people of that. <laughs> very It's say what I think, not what I do. You are so right. But, you know, I got a lucky break. I married someone who was a mathematician and <laughs> computer scientist. So, you know, I'm all this <laughs> and he's heavy duty backup. Right. <laughs> I think you're being very generous to me there, Edwina. I think in reality, geography, geography is about how things interrelate. And I think 
I think actually one of the problems, one of the real challenges is even in the subjects we want to teach, you know, STEM, technology, engineering, those things, um, when it comes to contextual problems like shopping, marketing, advertising, engaging with customers, um, it's not, it's not like building a Rolls Royce engine. There's, there's, there's sort of, uh, engineering science, which is how do you make a particularly fuel efficient engine? Very important job. Yes, please make more. But there's also this new world of mathematical methods being applied to softer topics like copywriting, like, mm. um, interpretation, like law. Um, in fact, the university uh, I'm teaching, I'm teaching at Sheffield or, well, I say teaching, I'm a visiting professor. Um, what's really interesting is where there's a recognition that even disciplines like archeology span or research into a disease, or they need a degree, they need an element of data science to be taught as part of it, because, you know, even that, you know, you look at, you know, what's happening in terms of virtually every discipline, data science is becoming part of the answer. And I think, I mean, the, the statistics that came out that said 200 million jobs globally will change significantly because of AI. I don't think it is AI as such. It's simply that the interpretation of things that humans have to do, computers now can do. You know, and, and the, the analogy I have, I, I, it's really easy to teach a computer to play chess because it can play itself over and over again because the rules are fixed. It can play chess all day, all night, forever. It can play more games than all the grandmasters in the world, and eventually it will be better than them because it learns from that and records. But it's hard to predict what people are going to do. But it's hard to predict what people are going to do. You know, we don't behave rationally. We are not, we don't behave like chess, you know, some people will re react in one way to a price price problems. Some people will react in another, and because of that, algorithms and the way we understand them, there's a there's a huge amount of interpretation that's needed. Storytelling. I believe one of the great benefits of what having someone like Edwina as part of our team in in the early days when we started all this thing is geographers are great at storytelling. They 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 can tell the story of how the city grew, how the interaction of things happened over time and they can make it come alive. And that actually is a real challenge. It's not just being good at the math. It's about actually telling the story. So the people who are having to change the organization to benefit can understand. Um, and you've gone through a whole list of questions that I was going to ask there about Clive. So it's great. I, you, you're almost automating me out of a job here. Um, what I, I was in the hand. Yeah, no, right. I know that's it's scary, but it's, it's what you were. One of the things you're famous for is creating the phrase "data is the new oil." So, if, if data is the new oil in the '90s and early noughties, what does that make AI today? Well, I, I think there's a big misunderstanding about AI. Um, I think everyone sees AI as technology; it isn't. AI is about seeing a worldview and interpreting it. It's the input data that matters, not the algorithm. Um, and actually, someone with a relatively simple 
AI model will probably outperform someone with a better mathematical model applied to poorer data. And um, I think what's happening is we're seeing, you know, if you look at, for example, language processing, which is the really the hot topic at the moment because of chat, GPC, and all those things, you know, we've always had correction algorithms for our spelling in Word and whatever. You know, we've had those little bits where we've been able to benefit in a small way, but now we've be, the the algorithms have become good enough to say, well, I've looked at 500 stories that have been written that are widely read, and this way of phrasing a sentence is better. It's more more accepted than this way of phrasing a sentence. And it's it can only learn from, as it were, the popularity of the sentences in some judgment terms, whether it's how well the book's rated or whatever it is. So I think we're wrong to think of AI as being a technology revolution. The, 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 it suits the media because then you get the sort of Terminator scenario, you know, the computers are going to take over. The reality is the computers can't take over unless they, they can generate better data. If I may add something, I would say that we have always seen ourselves as, you know, really advocates for data. Data's never really been that sexy or hot. It's always been technology. You know, it became automated, yeah. um, you know, call centers. And it's, mm. you know, then it became algorithms and then it became AI. And it's always the technology that seems to be the winner in every era that we pass through. The big weakness of every system is always the data, and it's the thing least understood because it's almost reported as a single homogenous entity, data. And that's what's said about it. There is data. But, you know, what Clive's just said is that the ground truth, the way you teach technology, the way you teach algorithms, the way you teach AI, is entirely dependent on the data you put in. And every business leader in the world will know something of the flaws of their own data. Mm. And in the back of their mind, they'll go, yeah, I know it's not really good. I wonder if there's some other data that I can buy. That ground truth, that data, is what's going to make the rule sets that we all live by. And if we use the data of the past to create a vision and plan for the future, it's all going to go a bit wrong. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. I mean, you know, what we're learning about the past doesn't necessarily apply tomorrow. Um, you know, we, the world is moving on. I think one of the other things we have to worry about from an AI point of view is what I would call digital ghettos, where people are disenfranchised. I mean, a very trivial example is parking apps. You know, you can't park now around where we live if you don't have a smartphone with Ringo on. Yeah. Because basically, well, what about all the people who don't have a smartphone? You know, it's yeah. like, well, poor you. You, you, you can't park anymore. You're, you're, you're disenfranchised. And, and what's happening is because the tech, because it saves money, they think, um, for the people who provide the, the parking services, they go, well, you know, we'll, we'll just make people use an app, but then we alienate people. And then you hear all the horror stories about these low traffic neighborhoods where the traders are suddenly seeing people aren't coming anymore. So my shop's going out of business. 
seemed like a good idea at the time. Un, the, 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 the whole output of unintended consequences, I don't think we've really thought through. And that's something I don't think, you know, people say we'll get legislation to sort it out. The legislators will never be able to keep up with yeah. innovation. No. Never. And recruitment is a problem as well, because if we want to change the balance of women and men in the workplace, and we use AI or algorithms to help us refine recruitment and make it more streamlined and more efficient, we're just going to end up with more men because the algorithm or the AI is going to say the most successful leaders are called Dave and Michael and Bill because that's what they've been. And, and how, but how do we stop that from happening, right, Edwina? Because oh. it is, that is, that is a, like, it, it is a challenge because that it's one of these things where like technology AI has already been in that space for a while in terms of recruitment, right? Because so many of these sort of top places get, you know, so many thousands of recruits, they have to, um, they have to find a way of sifting them, right? Yeah. Well, my theory and the one I'm working with right now is the idea that diversity and balance is not about how we look and what sex we are or what color we are. It's about how we think. So neurodiversity or cognitive diversity is much more interesting. And there are some really great, interesting, simple ways of approaching that. And what we want to stimulate creativity and innovation, we want diversity of thinking. So in a way, it would be great to focus on that and not whether someone's male or female or LGBTQ plus whatever. You know, that isn't the most important thing. And actually, wouldn't it be lovely if we could bring together people who can problem solve brilliantly because they look at the problem differently? I mean, Clive and I not only come to a problem and a solution in different ways, we express it in different ways. And actually, I think that's helped us through our business era uh, you know, it creates sometimes a little friction and confusion when we're trying to explain things to each other, but the net effect is very positive. And so yeah. that's what I would love to see happen in the future. Yeah, that's really interesting. And we'll, I really want to come on to talk about the female lead and, and everything that you're doing there. But as a final question on this sort of like jobs of the future bit, if, if you were in your early 20s now, what part of the world would be exciting you? Where do you think you'd be looking to start your career? Uh, well, I think there's no question that emerging markets are where everything's going to be very novel. I think if you start your career in the big traditional markets, it's going to be much tougher because they will be very slow to change. They've got too much invested in their current worlds. I think emerging markets, you know, um, South America, Asia, those those markets are where real innovation is going to happen in the next ten years. Um, but having said that, the grounding you get, and I, you know, I, I think we've sort of hinted at it. The grounding Edwina and I got in our first jobs from a really inspirational business leader called Herb Carr, who set up CSI where we worked. 
um, really set us up for life. I mean, we, we still apply today Herb's principles to all of our problems. Um, and you can't knock that. So I think it depends whether you've got to complete yourself. If you've got to complete yourself, find a great company that can really give you a culture that matters. But in terms of if you want to know where the next hot place is going to be, it's going to be in the emerging markets. And um, um, what's your advice, Edwina? Well, I would stick with data and I would stick with visualization of data because I mm. think people need to understand it and we all see it differently. And I know that a lot of people are graph blind. They look at a graph and panic. They look at a, you know, uh, a spreadsheet or a table or a, you know, yeah, any graph, and they will literally go, yeah, understand it when they don't. And so we have to get better at visualization. And and I think that is a brilliant area where we align the way people think and learn with the way we tell the story. I mean, that's a real challenge. And um, there are some brilliant visualization artists, but I don't think they get the funding or the encouragement or, or the follow through that we need in order to make that something that starts in the classroom and comes all the way through people's careers. Yeah. We, we had a uh, episode oh. recently with a lady called Maureen, who is running the 14th fastest growing business in the UK. And it's all about artists and matching artists. And I do think as the world becomes more visual, that's going to become increasingly important and what's the um uh, sort of related to that what, what are the most exciting companies that you've seen lately paul because you must get quite a lot of sort of pitches for investment and advice and yeah. so on so you must come across some quite interesting companies doing interesting things i imagine well women's health is mm. very exciting for me now because i think it's been um ignored and um poorly serviced for a long time and and you know and i think the idea of treating something like menopause as as part of a woman's life and not as a medical condition um would be quite groundbreaking um and i think you know menopause isn't a medical condition it's it's a it, it's it's a fact it, mm. it's an inevitability and, and, you know, women just happen to be slightly more biologically complex in that they have the three phases of their life cycle. You know, they have puberty, they have fertility, and then they have menopause. And, um, and that needs to be understood. So I'm excited by the fact that, you know, probably the medical profession, the pharmaceutical profession and even businesses are beginning to understand that you know we don't need to talk about things as if women are ill we yeah. just need to talk about that we're now going to understand them and we're going to innovate around that so there are a lot of little companies technology you know that are really growing and doing fantastic work in this area so you know, I'm excited for that. And I'm excited for the fact that AI will probably help us all manage our own health better, you know, so that we're not just going to the doctor. We can actually 
find out things for ourselves and become more useful and more knowledgeable. Totally. I think it's a, yeah, probably the most exciting avenue of AI for people. Okay. Yeah. What, about, what about you, Clive? What excites you that you've seen? Well, I mean, I think health, I think, is a big area. And, and I won't talk more about that because I think Edwin has probably covered it off. But the other one, I think, is um, basically uh, efficiency of production processes. The application of, of uh, technology and, and machine learning and other algorithms to, for example, agriculture, you know, getting the right mix of um, the right fertilizer on at the right time based on the growing conditions, the weather conditions, the fact that we can now use many, many more ways of understanding the ground. We can use LIDAR, understand the compactness of the ground, understand those sorts of things. So there's a lot of areas, I think, in terms of uh, food production and material production, where basically uh, algorithms are going to change things a lot. And I think that's good for society as a whole. Um, and I think what, you know, again, I think what we need to do is to say, right, where can we apply uh, these technologies to really revolutionize um, activity in, in areas like health, like food production, like sustainability? you know, that, that basically will generate massive change. Um, and, you know, technology has the power for immense good if it's well deployed. Mm. Um, but, you know, it will, only, it will only happen with the right innovation behind it. And so tell us about the female lead, Edwina, because this is something you've put a lot of time and a lot of passion into. It'd be great to hear more about it. Um, well, thank you. Yes, I... I'm passionate about it. I mean, you know the background. So, you know, I worked in an industry that was just very male dominated. And, you know, when I was at school, I learned about, you know, long dead women like Florence Nightingale and Ada Lovelace. Great women. But I thought, surely there are some living now. And all I ever heard about was Richard Branson and, and Dyson and Elon Musk. And I thought, where are the women? So, it, you know, it is a truth that you can't be what you can't see. And your little girls will see this. The more they see women doing amazing things, the more they will believe they can do them. And my mission is with the female lead to celebrate that women can do an enormous range of exciting, important things. And just because the media doesn't cover these doesn't mean that they don't happen. So I am there as a kind of catch-all to celebrate all these, you know, great stories and great achievements. And, you know, my latest passion is to say, we, you know, we've got to stop moaning as women. It is an unfair, unbalanced platform. That, that's fact. There is nothing actually wrong with women. They're not inadequate. They don't lack confidence. They don't lack ambition. They're absolutely fine. But it's not an even playing field. You know, business and leadership's been designed by men for men. Fact. You know, men aren't at fault. It just is. It's designed by men for men. And so, my mission is to actually prove that businesses and leadership will be better and make more money 
if women are involved. So I want to prove the economic value of women. And Clive is going to help me do that, along with a couple of universities, which is super exciting because it's all about the data. It's all about the proof. If we can walk into boardrooms and say, forget your KPIs, forget your good citizen job. Let's just tell you how much more money you're going to make or how much money as a government you're going to save if women are at the top table. So that's our mission. And my, my new book, which comes out next year, is called When She's in the Room. And when she's in the room, I want to prove makes everybody better, stronger, richer. And I think that is a super way to finish the interview as where we started in the boardroom. Although I do, well, there was one story that apparently the, the boardroom was silent when you finished and there was a pause for 30 seconds before the Tesco chairman said something which has gone down in folklore. What was that? Well, when we were taught, going back to CSCI, we were taught that when you asked your closing question, when you basically said, effectively, are we going to do this then? You don't say anything else. You don't give them a hook to let them you close your mouth and wait. And it was the longest pause. I mean, 30 seconds, it might have, I don't know, it felt like, <laughs> felt like 15 minutes to me. Everybody looked down, didn't they? Nobody yes. said anything. Nobody has. Ian McLaurin or nobody that was going to speak. So the tension was huge. Yeah. And eventually Ian looked at us and said, what worries me about this is you know more in three months than I know after 30 years working here. And I think that, and in a way, I think that was a very honest assessment that actually we shone a light on a business through data that was hidden behind this rule of averages, you know, the average customer, the average person, the average this, the average that. And, and, and there's nothing wrong with saying, you know, our average customer spends 200 pounds and it's got 2.5 kids and this and that. Now, of course there is nobody with 2.5 children. Yeah. Not, there's not a single person in the planet with 2.5 children. So, you know, this whole idea of the average being representative was wrong. And, and I think the fact that we just showed them there was huge diversity and actually they couldn't have a one size fits all. They'd got to think about each major group of customers and say, what do we do for them? What do we do for them? What do we do for them? I think that was the, 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 the scary. I'm not sure we did really know more. I think if they'd really thought about it, they probably didn't know as much, but I think we just shone a light on it in such a clear way. We quantified it. We put numbers yeah. on it. And that's what we've got to do also now with women. Put numbers on them, quantify it. So it's not a nice to have. It's a market differentiator. It's a winning strategy, just yeah. like it was for Tesco and, and Kroger. Yeah. And, you know, look, I don't think Club Card was the only thing that transformed Tesco, but we did go from. 16% market share to 27% market share in a few years. Yeah. 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 And it was certainly part, it was part of the formula that made us go there. And that's, you know, when you think about going from that market share to nearly doubling, it wasn't doubling, but nearly doubling it in the space of a few years in a very traditional market like grocery. 
they got fir- they got first mover advantage, and no one else in the UK's done it before or since. I mean, it also created part of that story, right? That magic kind of ingredient of you know, it was, it was part, it was a big part of the story of like Tesco going from sort of middle ranking right to the right to the top. And as a very final question, I just wanted to say, I just wanted to ask. If you were to pass the mic to another entrepreneur, who else should we go out and have a chat with? I love Sarah Wood, who mm. created and sold Unruly, and she's brilliant. She is. She was, yeah. uh, do you know, she was our fourth ever guest, but I might try and get her back on because that was quite a while ago now. Yeah. She's so good. Uh, another person I would talk to is another woman is Imogen Weatherhead at Cudini, mm. who have taken the problem of queuing and made it a benefit. And um, I think what Imogen has done with that business is really quite exciting and, again, shows the shows how data can improve processes really well. You could also try Vanessa Sanyuki, who runs Girls Tech, which right. is a brilliant business. So, Carl, I, I recently understand that you, were a, um, you became a star on the stage. Not you directly, but the character... Clive Humby. What was that like? Well, it was actually Mr. Club Card. Um, so it was a play by the Don Mar uh, called Privacy. Uh, it was actually on the, uh, as a result of the uh, Guardian revelations of, um, you know, all the, the, the WikiLeaks and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and he just looked at how data could be used. And uh, I became an advisor to the play and, they ended up making me a character, and I was played by Jonathan Coy, who actually does looks quite similar to me, you know. Um, and I think the scariest thing was he'd obviously watched videos of me talking on YouTube or wherever, and he had me off pat, honestly. He, and Edwina and the family were with me when we went to the premiere, and Edwina looked at me and she just said, that is you. <laughs> When Clive gets really excited about something, he does this kind of slight wing flap. And Jonathan Coy picked this up. I hadn't even noticed it. And when I looked at him, I just thought, that's genius. <laughs> that's genius. it. But it, yeah, so my job in the play was to basically uh, talk about the, the possible good versus evil of data. I was the conscience of the author talking to him about how data could be used for good and for bad. Brilliant. Well, that's, yeah, that's a cultural uh, mix, isn't it? That's special. It was special for me. I mean, to be a character in a play is quite something. Yeah. We, sounds... we, also got, we also got featured in Private Eye once, didn't we? That was oh, so very funny. And we were taking the mickey out of, which I think is the ultimate. Okay. What, what do they well, yeah, I mean, like, write a passage working in politics to be in private eye, but not so, not so much. Well, we, it was when we were working for the Royal Opera House and Tony Hall was the um, the big boss there. And we were brought in to help um, segment their audiences and their different productions. And, um, you know, private eye thought this was extremely funny given how very diverse the Royal Opera House's audience is. And so um, gradually through the article, they sort of morphed our name from Dunhumby until it reached 
the culmination with a Dunbugger all, which we were called <laughs> at the end. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, well, okay. Go and ask me more than that, can you? It's brilliant. Uh, you're very, very true. And you've also got OBEs. Like, you mentioned it about the business leaders and you know, it's sort of being Branson and Sugar and you know, these types. And, and actually, like, you know, they're, uh, they are great, but there are lots of business people making great stories. And in America, there is much more of a culture of putting these people on a pedestal because it, it's a lot of work and it's a lot, you know, there's a bit of luck along the way as well. Yeah, and as the old adage goes, the harder you work, the luckier you are. Thanks for listening to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. We've come a long way since our first episode when I started recording this on my own in my daughter's nap times. We are now a team that not only pulls together a podcast, but also creates content on multiple channels, whether that is our Substack, looking at the latest trends in business, entrepreneurship, and the future of work, or some of our more lighthearted takes on TikTok. And of course, our best moments are on YouTube. To find all our socials and best content links, click on the links in the show notes below. 